It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. Today, more than a quarter of the world's slaves are children. These children are forced to commit commercial sex acts, forced into a system of domestic servitude, or employed in occupations that are mentally, physically, socially, and morally harmful. It's estimated that those children being enslaved bring in more than $100 billion a year. Did you hear that? $100 billion a year to their captors. Around the world, an influx in sex tourism, the insatiable demand for child pornography and greed play key roles in the prevalence of child sex slavery and trafficking. In addition to strangers, family and close friends have been known to sell children off to individuals, businesses, and groups involved in the sex industry. Many of these children are born and bred into a cult-like family where they are forced to engage in sexual acts with adults in order to bear children to continue building the family of slaves. What happens to these children when they age out and are no longer a valuable commodity to those who control them? What happens to these children when they decide they want out and desperately try to find a way to escape? How do these children cope with a much different world than many of us would never experience? How do they survive in a world that doesn't look familiar once they do get out? My co-host can shed some light on the darkness surrounding these inconceivable acts against innocence. Diana Davis is the founder of Movies Making a Difference. Their mission statement is to make a difference by making socially conscious feature films, then directly aiding the victims upon whom these films shed light. Human trafficking victims, child brides, child labor, physical, sexual, emotional, and spiritual abuse victims. Diana's film, Cathedral Canyon, shed light into the underworld of the religious persecution of women in a rural polygamous community. I often see posts on social media of her team and the rescue efforts to help these young people escape the cult life in order to live a better life. I couldn't be more proud to call this beautiful woman a friend, and she truly is a hero in my eyes for helping these children when so many continue to turn a blind eye to what's happening. Hi, Diana. Good to see you. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for having me and recognizing what we do and the enormous need. You know, I have seen so many things in this world, and it really sickens me when it comes to crimes committed against children. And you have an interesting backstory because you don't really have a backstory. You're not someone who was directly affected by anything having to do with this, but yet here you are jumping in feet first, going in there in these areas, making these films, shedding light on all this darkness. Why do you do that? Why? You're not compelled like most of us who have had tragic circumstances. What compels you to just jump right in there and do what you do? Well, I think as uh, you you were talking about earlier when you see these commercials about these poor animals and everything, we haven't you know, necessarily experienced anything. You look at that and it's just, you know, it's absolutely heartbreaking. So, um, you know, growing up and, you know, even as a young adult, you hear about these things going on in Southeast Asia or um, the Middle East and, um, you know, Africa. And it's, there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it, especially when we're young, when we're trying to just, you know, make it on our own and getting ahead. And then when I found out that this was going on, not halfway around the world, but in my own state, like, you know, six hours away, and no one was doing anything about it, I couldn't, there was no excuse to say it's halfway around the world. It's here, and no one's doing anything. How could I say, isn't that terrible? Isn't that a shame? No one's doing anything if I could be doing something, and that's what I did. So when you first went there, even before you began working on your first film, when you went into that community... Can you give me a bird's eye view of what you saw? Well, actually, they wouldn't let anyone in the community when I first started working on the film. So I didn't go in there until afterwards when I figured out ways to to get in uh, with the help of actually Kathleen Wynn, who'd worked with the um, uh, attorney general's office. And uh, 
So she brought me up. They ran her license plates, realized it was with the attorney general's office, and we're going to be you know, pretty careful about not doing anything to disrupt us. But we were told under no circumstances could we uh, talk to anyone, look at anyone, whatever. We were bringing canned goods, clothing, um, just basic needs up there and dropping them off and getting out of town. So you really had no idea just how bad this place was? Oh, no, I knew how bad it was. I knew they wouldn't let us in to see how bad it was. Right. But um, Mike Watkiss, who I'd originally found out all about, the, he had to go up there with a bulletproof vest. Uh, he had shown us all of this um, you know, coverage uh, that never got out on the air. It implicated too many people that we might know. And uh, he really was the one who said, we need this movie made. So it's more like a prison camp. If I if I look at it in that respect, it's more like a prison for these young people trapped. Oh yeah, in. you can't. There's like no way in or out without the the God Squad, as they called them. Um, this is the FLDS up in Colorado City, and uh, they called themselves the God Squad, and they were the police force up there. So you couldn't go to the police. You know, they were the they were the predators, the bad guys. So this has to do with Warren Jeffs. Yes. Well, we know he's in prison, but. This is still going on, apparently, up there, right? Well, uh, basically, um, was about February before last, uh, the, the state of Arizona, who had overlooked all of the child labor and child brides because they weren't our kids. They were these, you know, crazy women in their prairie dresses. Um, so they used, really, basically used the child labor for, um, you know, to, they underbid all of our, you know, other contracts here and we're perfectly happy with it going on until they found that the um, the FLDS, the so-called church, had stolen twelve million dollars from the state from wow. food stamps, welfare, tax fraud. That when it hurt their pocketbooks, then they went up against it and they arrested the eleven um, church elders that were most prominent. That they got, um, they were in jail for four months, pled no contest, and got out with time served and told to get out of town. And they're all up in South Dakota, where in Pringle, South Dakota, where there's a new town that's even more secluded, and uh, it's just going on rampantly there. I can't even imagine the mindset of a young person being born and bred into this type of atmosphere. That has got to be something difficult for them, because that's probably the only way of life they've ever known, by being born and bred into this. And I can only imagine what it's like for them to step foot into our world and to see things so differently. That's got to be awful traumatic. Is there anybody that we can talk to that can express that for us? Well, I have my dear young woman, Sarah, who's calling in. And uh, she's she made it out. And uh, she's an unbelievably brave she's my heroine and uh among you know a couple of others i think i've got another uh one of warren jeff's wives that um is going to be calling in as well but uh sarah are you there i just wanted to thank you so much and tell you um just i'm in awe of you Mm, yes i am here (laughs) and thank you for that acknowledgement it means so much to me sarah you're pretty brave to come on and talk about these experiences I don't know if there's anything, can you share with me? I'm just curious, you know, is this where you grew up in this type of lifestyle with the FLDS? Were were you raised in this type of atmosphere? Yes, I was born and raised in it. Um, I lived in it for the first 12 years of my life. Wow. I'm just shocked that as a parent myself and seeing all of the stuff that's been covered on the news And it's not that I want to talk bad about your parents, but I I have a hard time understanding how parents can put their children in that place. And, you know, I'm just going to interrupt before Sarah says anything. Most of the parents, and now I think that it's a little um, different. I don't believe that both of uh, Sarah's parents actually grew up in it. But most that I know, the parents went through the same thing. The girls had so many um, children to be raised as more slaves and child labor and child brides, that by the time they got to 35 and they have already had 14 children uh, there and they know nothing else, that it really is so such a generational problem that I try to tell all these young people that 
they went right through it that's the same. But I thought what I find is remarkable is someone like Sarah say, what made you different? What made you know from the time you were a little kid, even never seeing the outside world, that it had to be better than what you were experiencing? And I don't know if you have the answer to that, Sarah, but it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I've asked myself that same question, honestly. Um, the greatest answer that I've gotten is really just the knowing of who and what is beyond this reality. And that was always the calling to my heart. Everything around me in the physical realm seemed in complete madness and insanity. And my parents and the grown-ups, they did not seem to know what was going on. They were just robotic, going with the movements, just really repeating over and over. And just from the youngest age that I can recall, it never made sense to me. And I knew that there was something more that had to be loving, that had to be connected, that had to be, you know, what I, what I craved. And I think that was another aspect of it was the pain was so big that I had to search for something else because I just wanted to end to the pain. So how did you get out? Um, I ran away quite a few times around the age of 12. So um, it was around, I think, 2001 when um, they made like decree that everyone was supposed to move down to Colorado City, Arizona. Um, I, it was like the, I grew up in Utah, in Sandy, Utah, up where Alta was. And so we, everyone was told to move down to the Twin City. And that's when I really started to get into trouble. And I started sneaking out. I started talking to boys. Um, my siblings, like by that time, my older brother had gotten kicked out, which really traumatized me. Um, the sister that was right older than me, she um, had, had left as well. And so when they leave, you know, they tell you, like, they're not your sister. They're not your brother. They're pretty much dead to you. So just forget about them, which it's really hard to just have your family tell you that they're not your family. Just forget about them. So those things really stuck with me as well. So I just, I kept getting in trouble. Um, I had a few incidents where the police were called many times and I would be brought back. One of the very last times I brought back, I was brought back, my father talked to me and he told me he was like you have to go talk to Warren Jeff and I told him I was like I don't care what Warren Jeff says I don't care what you say no matter what you do I will not stay here I will continue to leave until you allow me to leave and he wanted me to go talk with Warren and I refused but I'm surprised that he did not physically drag me there to see him um, and it scares me to think what would have happened if he would have done that, if I would have just gone along with it, which is huge for me to even at that point to have said, no, that I'm not going to go talk to him because that's not something you do. You don't get to choose what you do. You do what you're told. So he yeah. went and talked to Warren Jess and he came back and he said, okay, you can leave your stuff, which I think I only took like my birth certificate and one blanket and I left and I never looked back. And I should say that when you say that the police are called and you're brought back, um, do you mean the God Squad? Yes. A right. lot of the times it was the God Squad. Um, and then once I left and went to, like, Hurricane, um, the cops would also, like, they would put a missing persons report. And so when that would be found, they would bring me back to Colorado City. Right. My would come get me. And I know this is a really difficult subject, but I know that you're, uh, you know, you want the public and other people, you know, the, to know exactly what's going on in the, these kids. It's not just a religious community where um, mm -hmm. it's just overly strict and protective and, um, you know, fundamentalist. Uh, there was severe sexual abuse going on, wasn't there? Severe sexual abuse. Um, and uh, ritualistic, even, where, like, sex abuse is putting it mildly. Um, I would say it's torture, physical torture. Um, it's mind control. It's trauma-based mind control. So you're subjected to it from infancy. And in my family, I know that it was passed down all the way through my parents' children. And I'm the ninth of ten children. 
So by the time I was born, it was already rampant in my family. And when it's that amount of abuse, you are in a complete amnesia state and it's complete survival. Um, you're just surviving. You have no idea. It's like you're just in this constant state of panic and fear and waiting till the next time that the trauma occurs. And you're really not even aware. So most of my childhood was just complete survival. Every aspect of it was survival. There was no love. There was no connection. There was no getting along. It was just complete and utter destruction and torture of the physical body, your mind, your soul, your heart. They take everything from you. You have no concept of self. You are simply an object that is there for them to use and abuse as they please and when they want. That's why I say that you're just a hero to um, to all of us, you know, to um, and to actually come on and talk about it and let people know because that's the biggest problem, you know, that I have is that for, at Movies Making a Difference, we respect so much everyone's privacy. And when mm-hmm. people will want to know, okay, what have you done? Who have you helped? I'm like, uh, unless they come forward, that is not why we do what we do. You know, we're doing it yeah. for them and this is their journey. Um, so I have to tell you how I appreciate it because of people like you and just, you know, being able to open up and talk makes it possible for us to continue with donations and volunteering and, um, you know, people fall in love with you guys and they say, Mm -hmm. you know, what else can we do? You are doing so much that you're not even aware of, um, to, to continue, you know, really not just shedding light on it, but actually having us now do something about it. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's the survivors of things like this. When you come forward out of the shadows into the light and start opening people's minds and hearts to what's actually been going on and what's been ignored, that's when things really start to happen. And I've been watching what Diane has been doing for a number of years, and I just can't believe. I'm, I sat here with chills running up and down my body as you were telling me what was going on in your life back then. And to have to escape this type of life at the age of 12. I mean, that's just unfathomable to me. And that really does put you in my hero spotlight because to be 12 years old and have to make a decision like that to run for your life and try to figure out how to get along in this world, because this is a world that was unrecognizable to you once you stepped outside of that compound. And that says something to me of your will and your determination to survive because that is just, it's ludicrous that we would expect a 12-year-old to become an adult overnight like that. So that speaks a lot to your character that you can actually sit here and talk about this now. And the trauma does surface from time to time because I'm a trauma survivor. I get that. But the fact that you're sitting here talking about it, that is so amazing. And it's so amazing at where she is right now, which I'm going to have you um, talk about also, Sarah. But, you know, what... uh, Robin had said about going the, you know, in the outside world when you've never been there before and you don't know um, anything differently but what the, the horrors you've experienced. From what I've experienced, like the first time when we, you know, we'd, we you know, rescued somebody and now it's happened over and over again, that we'd um, you know, get them on an airplane, get them out of harm's way, and then I would take them to lunch. They're hungry all the time. Just give them yeah. a menu and say, what would you like, and have them have a complete panic attack because they have never had to, were never allowed to make one decision in their lives, including what they might want to eat. So now I realize when they're, you know, fresh out, that I ask them, do you like hamburgers? Do you like this? Without having them to have to decide. Did you go through anything similar when you first left? Yeah. Um, I did. That was actually the hardest part. And I still even struggle with it sometimes. Like it does surface randomly. Um, But it's like I've faced it so much. But in the beginning, I didn't realize what it was. Like I had no idea um, who I was. I'd never had a choice. I'd never had um, the opportunity to choose the food I wanted. I never had a choice of what I wanted to wear, um, what I wanted to say. I never had the ability to even say anything. I, I didn't even know that you could say no. I didn't know that you could have an opinion. I didn't know that you could, you know, disagree with someone. 
Um, I didn't know when I was thirsty. I didn't know when I was hungry. I didn't know when I needed to go to the bathroom. Um, I didn't know anything. I was essentially an infant walking around in a soldier's body um, in a foreign world that I had no connection with. I had no experience in, and I was completely alone. There was nobody that I could turn to. There was nobody available. There was no one even aware that I existed at that point. So again, I just went straight into survival. And having someone ask you, like you were mentioning, about what you want to eat, it honestly does put you in a complete panic. And you shut down and you're like, what? Like, I have no idea what's the right answer. I don't want to say the wrong answer. I don't want to offend you. I don't, you know, it's just like you just completely shut down and you have no idea how to respond. Yeah, and it's absolutely amazing. And I mean, Sarah's story is so remarkable. And uh, we could have a whole other show on on just Sarah, which I think you probably will want to (laughs) do. Well, I'm curious, how how long has it been since you escaped that hell? Um, So I'm 31 right now. So I've never been good at math. So it's been longer than I was in there. So it's been about 15, 16 years. I don't know. I'm not good at math. How's life for you today? It is actually beautiful, and it is amazing, and I am fully alive, which I've been getting how important that really is to me to really be alive, because most of my life, I didn't want to be alive. I didn't understand why I was here. Like, my life just didn't make sense to me. So now that I get who I am, and I get um, the magnificence of who I am, and the joy of being alive and feeling alive, that is just what makes my heart sing. It makes me really embody the passion that I have for connecting with people. Sharing my story has been the most satisfying and liberating and scary part, but it's been beautiful to see the impact. And it's all come down to safety. It's all come down to trust, which is another thing. It's like you don't have trust with anyone and you don't have trust with yourself. So I've had to build that. And as I build it, I've been able to face all of the darkest aspects of myself that did control me, and now it's liberated me. My freedom, I'm able to have an opinion, I'm able to use my voice, I'm able to love and feel unconditional love, and it's the type of love that is just beyond this reality. And if we were all able to access that love all of the time, like the fabric of the world would shatter into complete bliss because that is just, what our common knowledge is and what's available to us. So that is where I'm at right now to be able to go from a place of feeling dead to being fully alive and wanting to share that with the world is just miraculous. And I feel completely blessed and honored. And we're completely blessed and honored to have you too, as we call it, our mad family. It's movies making yeah. a difference, MMAD. And uh, Sarah is a definite core family member and she's actually a mom of her uh, uh, own now she's got her own kids yep. and uh, I just can't believe how far she's come and how far we're all going to go together because so we have lots of plans in in store which I have to tell you about Sarah because I want you to come down here we're going to have a, um, a screening outdoor keep it safe in this crazy COVID time mm-hmm. and uh, we would love to have you come down as our guest of honor so uh, that Aww. should be in, in November. Oh, and if that's the case, I'm going to be there because I want to meet you. Yeah, that would be amazing. You are going to meet her. So, uh, Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, you mean the world to me, and I will be talking to you very soon. Yay, thank you so much. I'm so honored sending you so much love. And thank you for being so brave to come on and talk to everybody about this. I really do appreciate you giving it a voice. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now we have a second survivor joining us. Brielle? Yeah, hi. Hi, how are you, honey? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for calling in. I know you've got so much going on in your life right now, but I'm always honored to have you be there for me. Yes. So uh, Robin and the rest of the audience doesn't know much about you, but... uh, Told them that you were the 65th wife of Warren Jeffs. Yeah. Let's talk about your background. Let's talk about how okay. how you became involved in the FLDS. Were you raised in it? Were you born and raised into it? Yes, I was a 
I was born and raised in the SLDS. My mother family joined when she was four years old. My father's family was always part of it, but my grandparents got kicked out when I was about 13. So they weren't really loyal. So my heritage doesn't really go back like as far as a lot of people's do. But I, I was definitely born into it. And I was born in Sandy, Utah, which at that time had a bunch of SLDS there. And um, I went to Alta Academy where Warren Jeff was the principal. My first grade teacher was Warren Jeff's first wife. So how old so, were you when you uh, were forced to marry? Warren Jeff's. Um, uh, I was 18, two months and one day. Wow. So I, um, yeah, I was barely 18. He had become the leader like September and I got married in January or I can't remember exactly the month, but I know it was like not too long before I turned 18 years old. And you didn't want to so, get married, yeah. did you? Well, I I didn't want to stay single forever because I didn't really want to be like ridiculed and bullied for that. But I didn't want to marry him very bad because of the, I had already been bullied quite a bit in my family and they would always tease me about marrying Warren Jeffs from as early as I can remember. They're always like, you're going to marry Warren Jeffs and I don't want him. That's how they would put it to me. So it wasn't like a blessing in my family. And I think the main reason was because we didn't have the heritage. Um, it would be like a really big, huge accomplishment if we were to go into the leader's family. But we wouldn't make it very far past that. Probably no hope of children, you know, like, because there's, there's a structure in his family also. So anyway, uh, my older sister married married his father five years before I turned 18. And how old was um, his father at that time? He's like in his 80s or something. But yeah, he's a pretty she old never, man. Yeah. And then she married Warren Jeffs, like, right in November before I married him in January. So Because Warren Jeffs knew. took his father's wives. Yeah, a lot of his father's wives, yeah. This is so hard for me to even fathom how you guys could live inside an environment like this, that they're passing you around and marrying you off at such a young age to these old men. I mean, that's just like really disgusting to me that, that you're being put in that position. Right. You're supposed to have three wives to make it to heaven for the men. And then um, how the leader, who you're supposed to trust this whole time, has 79 wives. So... You can see, like, some people wait forever their entire lives, especially men, and never get assigned a wife. But he, this person you're taught to trust and everything is, like, has 79. Well, you do the math on it. There's not enough women to go around for all the men. So, um, and, you know, they say it's a, a, a religion, but it's greed, make money, child labor. So in a polygamist environment, imagine how many children that one man can have if he's got 60 wives. Uh, and that's the labor force. So of course, if you say that this is your religion, you have to have you know, three wives um, and you know, a, a girl has to have a baby every year. You make all of these um, you know, doctrines of the religion, they then follow it because they think that's what it takes to get to heaven and life on earth is pretty much hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they're making it hell for everybody living in that compound that's not a man, oh, the, it's it, other than like a that. child. And it's hell. It's hell for the men too. They they're not. They can't marry who they want to. The the young boys are you know forced into labor. I got into this because if you think about the women, we now have about equal men and women that we've either gotten out or once they're out, helped them on the street and gotten into therapy and everything they need. But it's, um, it's just bad. Just I wouldn't say bad. It's absolutely horrific for the boys as well, just in a different way. Well, these grown men is what I meant to say. They're the ones that are in charge of all of this. So I'm curious because I've never been beyond those doors but is it like any other typical cult where when a husband and wife join this, the wife is now given to the leader and the husband is pretty much out of the picture? Does it work that um, way? It's not exactly like that. What they do is they decide, if they say they weren't ever really married if they're not married by the leader. It has to be a pointed arranged marriage or it's not sanctioned by God. So they will remarry you. Most of the time they just remarry them together, but... They do have to have an uh, actual another ceremony that the leader is involved in, or they won't, like, honor it. But the leader doesn't touch that man's wife? Not usually. Okay. I know that, like, um, in Joseph Smith's day, they do tell stories of how he 
um, would tell them sometimes, like test them and say, well, that your wife actually belongs to me. So I can't say it never has happened, but um, then in the end he would say, oh, you passed the test, you do belong to each other. Like the ceremony was the deciding factor, though. Brielle, have you um, known anyone or heard, I'm sure you, I know you've heard, but the seed bearers now, the men that were assigned to be able to have? Yeah, I don't know the seed bearers. It happened right after I left. So the first thing I heard after I escaped was in the newspaper, because I was there when he split up all the families mm-hmm. and said they shouldn't have any desires to have sex. Like, that's like a sin. Everybody needed to be separated so they can overcome that desire. I was there in those meetings. I escaped, and then I had to escape out a window and everything. But the first thing I heard when I was in a shelter, I was in a domestic violence shelter in Salt Lake, was some one of the members brought in a newspaper and was telling me about how the prison had heard him talking over the phone, you know, and he actually said it right over the prison. Like That's Warren Jeffs when he's in prison. Yeah. And the prison was the one that reported it that to the newspaper is that he was assigning 15 guys that were more worthy, you know, had better bloodlines, you know, most likely the children would be more submissive and more obedient with this better bloodline, I guess. And so they were assigned to carry on the children of the church. Well, I yeah. actually um, know firsthand some of the uh, the uh, girls that this happened to. Um, one in particular was brought by her father to the seed bearers, and it's just it's a really a ritual. And they, the seed bearers, I think there were five of them, all had sex with her. That's like the Handmaid's Tale. Exactly. And so um, her youngest daughter, she doesn't know who the father is. It could have been any of those five so-called seed bearers, which were assigned that honor by Warren Jeffs. That's rape. Absolutely. They had started ritualistic stuff before he split up the families, so. Right. It wasn't all like from seed bearers. It was mostly with husbands, I think, but it was still like really ritualistic and really bad. Can you take me back into that world and what you were doing on a daily basis? Paint that picture for all of us so that we know what a day in the life was like for you living there. What was it that you did every day? Okay, so when I when I first went into Warren's family, he sent me home on the first night because I hesitated to like basically touch him and everything where he figured it you know, I, I should just be like ready. You know, the whole life is all about don't date, you know, seriously, like it was doctrine to treat the boys like snakes and only rely on the leader to tell you who to marry. And then after you get married, it's supposed to be like a complete reverse, like you're just supposed to be ready. But I wasn't, I hesitated. So he sent me back to my father's house. And then I was brought up to the the place to have trainings on being prepared to go wherever he wanted me to go. I didn't even know where I was going to go. Part of those experiences brought up a lot of red flags for me, but I couldn't tell anybody. One of the red flags was about the children in his family. He went into a great detail of talking about how he was running from the law. He wasn't on the most wanted list, but he was still running from the law and how he felt like he needed to take all of his biological children that were under eight years old because the church has a, a real big baptism at the age of eight. Anyway, so he took all the ones younger, which were most of his kids, away from his property here in um, Hilldale, Utah, where he had stayed for years before he became the leader. He took them all to a secret location, and he said that the biggest thing was is that God revealed that not one of the biological mothers, the ones that actually had those children, were worthy to go with their children. Like, they could go with mothers that never had any kids, but they couldn't go with their own mothers because their mothers weren't still worthy of their kids. They had, you know, God gave them those kids, but then they had, like, fallen out of alignment now. So they had to readjust their lives to be called forward to be with their kids. And that was a big flag to me, and it made like a revenge inside of me. Like I felt like I needed to go and be like a witness for the inside to figure out what was going on. I was 18, but I just remember thinking, that is so weird. God probably wouldn't do that to 30 mothers on one night. Like he had a big family. He had plenty of mothers that had children, and for all of them in one night to lose their kids, so contrary to like what I know about the foster care system now, which I didn't know at that time. I just knew that it was, it just felt wrong. And to trust a God who took away that many kids all in one night seemed just bizarre to me. So that was a red flag that I held inside. I did go to the location that he wanted me to go to, which I found out on the way was Texas, the Yearning for Zion Ranch that was later 
taken over by the whole Texas took it away from the FLDS. And that's where they found the records that put Warren Jeff in jail for life in 20 years. When I got there, he he had a regular schedule for most of the women was was either sewing all day or cooking all day or cleaning all day or watching kids all day, teaching school all day. Like they had certain jobs they let the women do. And it was very banned to be anywhere where the men were. Um, if you did go to the storehouse where they had a lot of the donations from the people where you got your supplies for sewing or for cooking or whatever, you always had to have somebody with you. It was really close to his house. When I first arrived, there was just trailers there. It was really muddy and stuff. But eventually they built like houses and stuff. But I wasn't there very, like the whole time. I got moved around quite a bit because I was more rebellious. I saw so much stuff with the children when they would get attached to a mother that wasn't their biological mother, but somebody that was taking care of them day after day. They would just like rotate them. So they never had that attachment or bond with anybody because Warren Jess was making sure they didn't. So that's a big problem because, you know, love is a big deal. It's worse than adoption. Adoption, you at least have the hope of security. These children had no hope of that. It was just all about obedience, 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 and survival mode. He literally kept them in survival mode. I figured out after I got there that he was setting up like houses so I could not make it back to my father's house because that was like people, he didn't want his updated new knowledge getting back to people that had never been to Texas. So he set up these middle ground houses that are like houses in hiding. And he would put people in those if they started to rebel and tell them to just pray and read till they just got called back to Texas or something. He didn't want his knowledge coming all the way back to people that had never been called. So he he specifically set it up to where they had no communication. In Texas and stuff, they had like gates around them with guard towers and they were driving around every 15 minutes on four-wheelers. Um, and also inside the family, each family structure, if somebody started to question or any signs of even not even saying their prayers that day could be like a flag to warn Jeff. And then um, he would like assign, secretly assign like a sister wife to check on them or somebody else in the family. Like he would just like make sure that everybody had this like pyramid style reporting and tattling on each other if anybody had any symptoms or signs. So nobody really wanted to go there. It was like a fear tactic. If you started to question at all and you start, you just start losing blessings. You start losing opportunities and it you didn't know really how you were ever going to like get back to somewhere where you could run away. Now how did you end up back in Colorado City in that room that you escaped from? Yeah so when I was in this house and I told the whole house that I wasn't praying in this middle ground house then I woke up to realize that he didn't have God on his side the God I'd always been taught about I didn't really know God I still believed in God I just didn't know him and then I went to like it was a whole it was years in between so I was in these middle ground houses for two years after that but I went silent I didn't like I tried to fit in after that because I was scared I felt like if he doesn't have God on his side then I don't have any protection like I'm in this trap I woke up to that like it was about a year after I had got joined assembly so after I realized I had no protection then I went silent I stayed there for two years because I didn't have an exit route like I couldn't like I was trapped I couldn't like figure out how to escape without being part of his ritualistic stuff. I couldn't go to Texas, but I also didn't have a way to just like walk away from the house or anything like they had caretakers and cameras and all these things in these houses. So I just waited. I just read for two years and then he got caught by the law. I knew the law was looking for him when they finally caught him. Then I started to pray again. I told you know, everybody I'm praying, you know, and anyway, it made it so he was angry I did go back to Texas. I did start to research routes out. I had to figure out some, I had to like research. But he sent like the people that had gone through a lot of psychological abuse and different things to be around me. He didn't like put me with nice people. And so I had like a really hard time like escaping. And it took me three years of basically solid torture, psychological torture. And in the end, it got to where they actually told me I could go back to Colorado City. I was the first one in Warren Jeff's family to go back there, but they said your only requirement is that you go back and find something wrong with your father and tattle to Warren Jeff about it, and he will take the blame off of you. He will suffer for you, and then you can come back and be a part. Like We'll give you another opportunity to come and join our group that does this type of stuff to people. 
and I didn't want to, that was part of the problem was that I, I wouldn't join their group because I knew once I joined that group, I would probably be involved in things that I wouldn't, I couldn't live with myself for. So I always told them, I'd rather die than join your group. Like, I don't want to because I know that it's bad. And so it caused, and they said they wouldn't give up on forcing me to join their group until one of four things happened. And the four things were like, either you somehow escape and become public or that's what actually happened in the end. Or you become so crazy that nobody will ever believe you. Or because of all the gaslighting and stuff. Or you die or you actually join us. Those are the only options you have now because you've been selected and you know too much. So for the only way for us to stop harassing you is if you if one of these four things happen. Well, I, I, I just kept fighting with them, trying to work my way out. Well, when I let when I came back to Colorado City, that that was the requirement was that I come back and tattle on my father. There's a scripture that says in their doctrine that says if you don't understand by the time you're baptized, which is by the time you're eight years old, then the sin goes on the head of the parents. So they were like telling me that's what you need to do. Brielle, take us back to the day that you escaped out that window. Yeah. So when I when I got back to Colorado City, then my I didn't tattle on my father. I did take the opportunity to come here, but I didn't tattle on my father because I love my father. You know, I thought that was really, you know, I did wait. Like what I did is I, I knew if I did anything very drastic, then I probably wouldn't live through it. Like I had been threatened a lot. So I didn't know, I I didn't want the, to leave the kids. Like I felt really bad for the children and how much abuse I saw them going through. So I, I what I did is I didn't do anything for like two years. I just stayed at my father's house as best I could. And and in the end, Warren Jeffs actually demanded that I do something. And when that time happened, I knew that I was a little bit safer. Like I knew they wouldn't know right off if I was the one that actually tried to help these kids, you know. So they would have to question me a lot to find out for sure if it was me. So what I did is I wrote about all the people that had tortured me in those three years psychologically. And the reason I did that is because I knew I, I knew once I left the church, then I would have to learn about laws. I'd have to learn about the whole court system, take years. And I didn't want the kids to suffer that whole time. I already knew how to manage the SLDS system. So I, I wrote about everybody who did it to me, and I knew that they wouldn't die. They would, like, lose a position. And what that would do is that the children would have some time to, to like, they would have to retrain adults to be in those high positions. They wouldn't have, like, constant abuse all the time. They would have to train people, and so there might be a few years that the children would be able to have some freedom, maybe a little bit more freedom than abuse, you know, solid abuse. So I um, I tattled on everybody who did that, and then within a week, all of my abusers showed up in Colorado City, and I got locked up in my brother's house. He was threatened, I believe. There was, like... Um, they put me in a room like solitary confinement and put screws in the window and turned the doorknob around so that I, the lock was in the hallway. So I couldn't like like get out. But that day they were like questioning me and stuff. So what I did is I waited for my brother to leave. I heard his truck leave. His family, there was people around, but I found some scissors and I unscrewed one screw. And the other side was not all the way screwed in. It was really tight. So I pounded on it and because it wasn't screwed all the way in until it broke off. I heard the people in the house gasp. I knew that if my brother came home or if men came over, then there would be like screws all at the window. I wouldn't have a chance. But because it was just like children and women in the house, then I um, might, depending on you know the timing, I might be able to escape. I, I didn't really think I would escape. I actually just decided I wasn't going to give up. But um, I did want to help more, you know, on the outside, I could probably do more than what I was able, able to do in there. But, you know, I didn't think I would escape, but I I just kept trying. So when it broke off, then I knew I had a choice to leave right then or to do what they said, which was, you know, what they said for me to do that day was to read. They said, lay down and read. And I played at the screws. And then when they gasped, I had a choice. Like, I, I just thought, I need to leave. But I don't want to take anything with me because if I open any of these drawers, they're going to think that the other screw is out already. They didn't know that I had already gotten one out. So I didn't take my ID. I didn't open any drawers at all because I didn't want them to be aware that I was leaving because I'd been picked up on the street before. So I um, I climbed out the window. And, I, and they didn't notice for like two hours is what the report is now. 
they didn't realize the other screw was out and they saw I laid down in red instead of like exiting when that happened. But I did exit. I I, made, I took back roads because I had some of the SLDS people in this town. It's an older compound, but they they had seen me on the roads and they would call and tell people. But I took roads through the creek and stuff as best I could. Went to a family um, that I knew had all left together. So in the older compound, there are a mixture of people, FLDS and XFLDS, that you can talk to if you can get there. So anyway, I ran through a yard right before I got to the house I was going to, and it was a lady sitting outside who was meditating. And she's like, can I help you? And I, she was dressed different than FLDS. Like, yeah, sure. So she drove me up to the family I was going to. She went. She asked if she could come in or just leave. I told her to come in. She knew who to call. The family I had run to had two recently left themselves. They didn't know any of the organizations on the outside. But this lady that I happened to meet and run to her yard while she was meditating actually knew the answers. Like There was multiple miracles like lined up. And I would not be where I am today without the real God, I, I believe in, you know, like not Warren Jeff's God, but I've learned that the universe or whatever you attribute that to must be real because I've had too many experiences that lined up that I, I just don't have any control over, you know. I couldn't have done it all on my own. Well, it's just absolutely amazing. I mean, what you've been through, your story, and able to, um, you know, talk about it now. I'm so glad you made that choice to to escape. And it's so wonderful to now have you to be able to, you know, tell our um, viewers and, uh, you know, all the people that this is real, this is happening, and it's widespread. And um, so happy to have you in our mad family of movies making a difference. And thank you for sharing your story today. It's very important that people understand what goes on inside those closed doors. Yes, I'm very passionate about it. I talk a lot, but yeah, I'm very like passionate about helping the kids, especially, you know, like they don't, you know, they're just innocent, you know, like they don't have any reason to be in this, but they're kind of trapped till they're 18. And I feel like they go through more than even I did. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brielle. And you know that you and I will be talking very soon. And uh, yeah, we'll make lots of plans to, to continue our mission. So tell me, Diana, now that we've just heard from two survivors, and thank you for allowing them to bring their story to us and show some awareness of what's actually going on. What are you now up to with Movies Making a Difference? What are you now up to with everything happening? Oh, we are up to... We're up to a lot because a lot needs to be done. Uh, We have such support in Florida. Uh, When I first started out here, um, I was wondering why my um, computers were all getting hacked, email, Facebook, tried to show the movie here. Um, They would, the FLDS was still in complete control up there. They'd come down here and they would threaten whether it was a, uh, the movie theater at Harkins or wine bar saying, you use, you show this film here, you do a fundraiser for them, the health department will be all over you. Wow. Yeah, so uh, they actually... Really, I was going up there every other month with some of our, um, you know, our team members, and uh, they never, like, actually showed up to me. They would just let me know that they were on to me and to um, to be careful. My God, it's like the mafia. It is. It's absolutely. It's organized crime operating under the guise of religion. So um, FLDS, work crews and everything were not in Florida. I could talk. I could have fundraisers. We could have our kids come there. So as I said, we've got a safe house there now when from anywhere in the country, because it's not just those are the big hubs of Colorado City and Pringle and Texas. They're all over Denver, Wyoming, Indiana. They're, they're all over the place, these little tiny communities. And uh, so we now have over 150 young people that we now say are part of our MAD family. And uh, they um, come for scholarships, for um, treatment. So many become addicts. They know nothing about addiction and drugs. And they need to self-medicate when they're out. And unfortunately, you know, we have to get them clean and sober before we can really start them on their lives. And uh, we get the girls... Um, GEDs. We support in any way. We don't have a program. It's an individual. If they need um, transportation, if they have a broken car, we get that fixed. You know, job opportunities, life skills, anything that's needed. And they stay with us forever. Um, So So you become like the parental figures for them, which is really cool. Yes, that's exactly. And now we're really um, trying, because they've cleared out of Colorado City and Arizona, we are trying to now do more here. We're going to be um, working on a 
showing the movie, fundraisers, and uh, making Arizonians much, much more aware of what's going on in our state. In our own backyard. Mm-hmm. So if anybody would like to find out more information about what you do and, and if they want to help volunteer or do something just to, I don't know, donate stuff to help you guys out, get these kids out of that organization and back on the road to success, how do they find you? Well, our website is moviesmakingadifference.org. And uh, here in Phoenix, uh, we are starting because as all nonprofits are struggling right now with the COVID, not being able to have fundraising events, we're trying to be creative and we're having um, people, uh, they donate clothing. We're starting a Poshmark and eBay thing that we can uh, raise funds that way. So if you can like email us through at, actually Diana at moviesmakingadifference.org, if you have any donations, uh, that would be wonderful. You can donate on the website. We always need volunteers for graphic design from hands-on with, with the, at the fundraising events we're going to do. Actually, anything. We need everything. Well, you know, I can't thank you for what you're doing. Again, you are my hero because our children are so important and so many people have turned a blind eye to this. And it's just, it's enough time to start doing things. So again, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing and having several of your survivors share their stories as well. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you for your friendship and all your support. Our children are precious and they don't deserve these heinous acts they are forced to endure. This has got to stop. We have to stop ignoring what's going on right in front of us. They don't deserve this. We need to stop turning a blind eye to the horrendous conditions and the things these young people are being put through. Would we want our own child to be taken? Would we want our own child to endure these disgusting and life-altering ordeals? What kind of world are we living in when we choose to ignore the damage being inflicted on our beautiful children? Enough is enough. It's time that we open our eyes and stop ignoring what's happening. Don't brush it off just because it may not be our child. It's someone's child, and they don't deserve what's being done to them. It's a cruel world when we are faced with crimes against children, and we must do everything in our power to protect them. Enough is enough. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real.